This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Worth a try. And he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. Hello, it's Off the Ball with me, your new host, Cam Ruslan. And uh, today we've got Premier League all the way. And with our two, two upfront pundits, we have Arvin Sidhu. Hello, everyone. It's good to be here. Yorkshire and Lancashire are both feeling bad today because both our teams lost over the weekend, but we march on regardless. We have, because Arvin's a, a Leeds United fan, but we have a Manchester United fan here today. And I, and I, he's a little sad. I can't think why. Uh, he is Sean Maholtra. Hope you're having a good Monday. Hopefully it's better than mine because Sunday was depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about that. Because as I say, it, today it's going to be Premier League all the way. It was a packed uh, fixture list over the weekend. And the mm, glamour match of the weekend would have been... Manchester City versus Manchester United. Um, the final result was Manchester City 4, Manchester United 1. And it's now becoming unclear which of those two teams is the noisy neighbour to the, the, the dominant side. But it was... I had to watch it on uh, highlights with French commentary. My French isn't very good, but I did understand a few words when referring to Manchester United's passivité and also to Manchester City's domination, mm-hmm. and also to uh, Mahrez as Le Maestro, but he could equally have been talking about De Bruyne, who was spectacular. So let's go to you, Sean, because uh, I know you want to talk about this match. It's... Manchester United were dire. Okay. They were good for the first half, but then yeah. it just all fell apart. What's going on? It's... The same old thing again. You know, we've been saying it since Ralph Ragnick's come in where United are a one-half team. And it happened again last night. Even though United were down by a goal after 45 minutes, you know, 2-1, United had positive things going forward. We had chances. United created chances, looked strong, you know, managed to expose City a few times. But again, it happens where in the second half, you expect them to turn up and be like, okay, you now have this chance where you're only down a goal because Foden could have easily put the game out of sight in the first 30 to 40 minutes. But United came out in the second half like a team that just didn't know what they were doing. And I think Pep realised something about United after the first 45 minutes. United's biggest weakness, I mean, it's easy to point the finger at Harry Maguire because three of the four goals were his fault. But the biggest weakness was Aaron Wan-Bissaka. He couldn't progress the ball forward from the right side. And every time he tried there were two or three players around him. And the minute he got surrounded, he couldn't do anything. 90% of City's attacks came from the left. You could say that De Bruyne was amazing. He was. Mares was amazing. But you can look at Rodri. I think Rodri dictated the entire game. There was one pass he made that made me go, man, I wish we had a player like that. (laughs) But Pep realised where United's weaknesses were. And he played right through it. United had no answer for it. Unfortunately, my, the button that I press to give Sean an electric shock every time he says we when referring to, re- referring to Manchester United is not working, and I, I keep pressing it. But uh, <laughs> Arvin, you're a little more neutral on this. Manchester United, I, I'm going to give you a stat, actually, that Sean gave me earlier on. Remarkable. Second half, yeah. Manchester United had only 8% possession. Yeah. As that was probably just taking the ball out the back of the net. Yeah, it's abysmal. I mean, no goal attempts, no shots on goal, no shots off goal, even no blocks. When you don't have blocks, that's when you know something's not right. 
you know the players are not putting in a shift. I think Peter Drury summed it up really well. He said the worst thing that Man United did was to score the equaliser because it was literally bloodshed in the water where you had blue sharks circling around you. And that's what Man City were. Um, there's a lot of things that United have got right now that they need to sort out. And I don't know if they've got the time to do it. And I don't know if Ralph Rangney is the man to do it. Uh, Ralph Rangney is, is well-respected in Germany for setting up institutions, being in the consultancy role. Brilliant mind. But I, I also think modern footballers, when you bring someone in on an interim basis, there's a sense of feeling that they don't know if he's going to be there at the end of the season. They don't know if he's going to be there next season. So why should I go above and beyond my capability of or my performances on the pitch? I think they're being blasted, rightfully so, by Gary Neville, by Roy Keane, the players on the on the pitch, because they're just not doing it. There's issues right now. I mean, the Ronaldo thing, again, um, the sense that he wasn't fit, but then on, online, his sister likes a post that he was fit. Cavani getting thrown slightly under the bus by Ralph Ragnick. And, and, and the amount of players that United have spent and bought, when you compare them to Liverpool and City, I think United have bought individuals, hoping to mould them into a unit. While Liverpool and City, they've bought players that have fit seamlessly into the team. Just look at Luis Diaz at Liverpool right now. You know he's going to be doing well for them for the next couple of seasons. So again, this, this is not very good times for United. I mean, they're fifth now behind Arsenal. Arsenal, they've got three games in hand. And they're they going to have some, some major challenges come end of the season. I mean, it's, it's not looking all rosy. And when, when City, on the other hand, not just beat them in the league, they've done the double on them. The women's team beat them. The under-18s have beaten them. So <laughs> there is a sense. And I feel for Man United right now, but because I just think there's just so many things they need to sort out with very few bright spots right now. I, okay, last word given to you then, Sean. You were nodding your head there, sadly. <laughs> and uh, if we look at the situation now, it's looking unlikely because they're going to get the fourth spot. Arsenal are a point above. They've got three games in hand. And the bright side... Dead Corkill believes that uh, Manchester United are going to win the Champions League, so you've got that to look forward to. They said there was a there was a chance that United <laughs> could win the Champions. That isn't what I heard. No, no. no. <laughs> but realistically, you look at the Champions League. You know, it's, it's a one-off. Every team has a chance of winning. It doesn't matter how well you perform in the league. There's a chance you could win it, but I don't think United have it in them to win it. The fact that. United are a point behind Arsenal now and Arsenal have three games in hand. You know, you can look at it and say, hey, Arsenal's still got to play Liverpool, Spurs, and I think Chelsea in that three games in hand, which but is they very difficult. They, they could, could lose all three. three. And they could still be ahead of United if they lose all three. So, <laughs> United has to focus on just trying to do the best they can up to the end of the season now because Champions League places is not entirely in their hand anymore. Unless, of course, they do a miracle and win the Champions League, which I highly doubt. <laughs> but in a way, I don't know, I've looked at it and I thought it may not be entirely a terrible thing. In a business sense, it may be a terrible thing. But in a footballing sense, it may not be entirely bad. I'm glad you think it may not be entirely bad because it's going to happen probably. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm glad you rec you're reconciled to that. <laughs> let's go from one extreme to the other. We, we didn't really talk about uh, the brilliance of Manchester City there, but let's look at the, the team that's second in the league. Uh, Liverpool won West Ham nil. And if we compare and contrast, I thought that they scored a 28th-minute goal and they kept attacking Liverpool, this is. But uh, West Ham had a 
lot of chances. It's not as if Liverpool know how to shut up shop or park the bus or defend a lead. They just keep going. Is that a weakness, uh, do you think, Arvin? Yeah, potentially. I think on another day, West Ham could have got something from this game. I mean, there were chances for Pablo Fornals. There, there was the chip. There was the follow-up header. Vlasic also didn't do that well. Lanzini, that opportunity that he had when he kind of faked Trent and then he had that goal at his mercy. Um, but David Moyes has got a horrible record at Anfield. I mean, he's gone there with four different clubs. He's never won a single game there. So sometimes these kind of things just stick with you throughout your football career until a point where eventually someday you get a little bit lucky. But to, to win the league or to at least challenge City, there will come games like this where Liverpool will be required to do this. They, they can't be winning the 3-0s and the 4-0s. And Anfield right now is just an absolute fortress. I was looking at the stat with Virgil van Dijk. They've not lost in 60 games whenever he's played at Anfield. That's a crazy step for one component of the defence. Obviously, a very important component. Liverpool could have had a few. West Ham, unfortunately, missed a couple. Trent, I thought, was a huge difference. He he provided creativity moving forward. He cleared, he cleared a goal, could have gone off the line as well. And Luis Diaz, for me, again, like I said, perfect Liverpool player. But yeah, um, I think it's not really a weakness per se, um, Cam. I just think that there are games like this that you need to kind of grind out the results and kind of get a little bit fortunate as you go along. But again, it's going to be one of those seasons where they could get 100 points and they're still yeah. not going to win the league. Yeah. Let, we're going to wrap up the the top the fact with the top two there. We'll win a moment. We're going to come, we're going to come back and we're going to be looking at all sorts of different ends of the league. And uh, here on Off the Ball on BFM eighty nine point nine. Captain, leader, legend. Off the ball on BFM eighty nine point nine. And we're back, and it is still Premier League here on Off the Ball, and we're now looking at a resurgent team. Uh, under a new manager, newish, he's been there for a few matches now. Aston Villa for Southampton nil. I was watching this and I was thinking, um, well, Villa were, were very good, but they looked a lot like City. They played like City, but I kept thinking how Gerard is really staking a claim for his, for the Liverpool job. It's it was a very mature display. Uh, Sean, do you think that uh, Gerard's doing something right there at Villa? And who are the standout players then? For I mean, Coutinho was very good. You know, you, you look at the way Steven Gerrard wants Villa to play. Right? He expects them to play at a very high intensity. He wants them to play this nice attacking football. If you look at their midfield, I think that was what differentiated them between them and Southampton on the day. McGinn, Douglas Luiz and Coutinho, these three unlocked everything Villa on the day. And it's surprising because you know Southampton's been playing pretty well coming up to this point. You know, James Ward-Prowse has been playing well. Oreo Remiu, those two in midfield have been playing really well for Southampton, for them, everything going forward. But they were outclassed by Villa on the day in every sense of the word, in defence, in field, in attack. I think, you know, if you look at the way Gerrard's been playing his teams, he takes risks that I think weren't being done under Dean Smith before this. Gerard is willing to have like, his entire team go forward and, and create chances, while at the same time having his defence extremely exposed. But the thing is, you can see every single one of those players working for him. Every single one of them is willing to put in the shift. And Coutinho has been, he's been insane since he's come back to the Premier League. And I saw something on Twitter the other day. Someone's got to explain why Coutinho can turn it up in the Premier League and not turn it up in in the La Liga. I can't say much about why he couldn't perform at La Liga, but I see him in the Premier League and it's like he never left. He looks the same. He's still playing insane balls. The assist that he had was just chef's kiss. It was beautiful to watch. 
you have a team, you know, that's the key word. You said they, they feel very city-like. That's because they play like a team. There's no, no one you look at Villa and say, you know what, there's one standout player. Every one of them puts in the same amount and that's why they're playing as well as they are. Yeah, there's a chance they could finish, you know, quite well at the end of the season. And uh, well, speaking of which, then, so Southampton, enigma for me, um, fluctuating. Uh, we're going to be talking about Wolverhampton Wanderers later on, similar kind of story. Uh, who are Southampton, Arvind? What, how come they blow so hot and cold? They do. I mean, this is the typical six ones, seven ones that sometimes they lose. Uh, but I think there's Southampton have got some a future to sort out because Ralph Hasenhutl has come out and said that maybe in 2024, that's when he retires from the game because the intensity of managing. So I think they, 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 he's given them a bit of time right now to figure things out. But in 2024, they could potentially lose their manager, who I think has done fantastic for them, to be honest. Uh, but then again, I was reading another report that Ralph Hasenhutl could be the next Man United manager because of mm-hmm. his close relationship with Ralph Rangnick. So there's a lot, a lot going on there. Um, you know, you know what you're going to get with Southampton. I mean, on the day itself, I agree with Sean. I thought Oliver Romeo was completely outplayed in the middle. Gian Benmerek at the back looked completely. He looked like he had no idea what was going on. And the only bright spark that they had was Stuart Armstrong. And typically, when Stuart Armstrong is your only bright spark, you <laughs> you kind of worry because up front you hope the likes of Che Adams and you hope the likes of Armanda Broha will provide a little bit more threat, but they didn't. And for Villa, I honestly, best performance of the season so far. Four different goal scorers. Everyone was fantastic. And woohoo, the next match they got is coming up to us against Leeds and Ellen Road. So <laughs> that's just our luck that we have. So, yeah. But, uh, I mean, not that uh, Jurgen Klopp, I think, is planning to retire anytime soon. But, uh, Arvin, do you think uh, Gerard for Liverpool? I, I, think, I think that Gerard for Liverpool thing has been talked about so much. I think we need to just give him time to kind of build his legacy at Villa. I mean, he. we all know his affiliation to Liverpool, what it means to him. He's publicly come out and said that that's a club that he wants to manage. But I think the trials and tribulations of the Premier League require him to be there for at least a couple more seasons to kind of kind of stamp his mark. And then eventually the Liverpool job will be ready for him someday. So I right. think the time needs to be given and respect needs to be given to a very big club in Aston Villa. Yeah. I th- I just to like carry on from mm-hmm. Arvin's point, I don't think you want to make the same mistake clubs like Chelsea have made and clubs like United have made, just because they're a club legend doesn't mean they'll succeed at the club as managers. You know, the, the great thing about Steven Gerrard is, I think if you look at CV-wise, he's had like experience in Scotland and now he's come back to the Premier League and he's managing as well. Give him another two, three years and if Klopp decides to retire and you know Gerrard's been steadily doing well with Villa, why not go to Liverpool? But right now, I think he knows he should be focusing on Villa. His mind is on Villa. So, yeah, don't, don't mm. rush this process. Actually, great players who've become great managers, I think, uh, are in the minority as opposed to great players who turned out to be not great managers. Uh, yeah. I mean, comes to mind, I don't know, Beckenbauer, pretty yeah. good manager. Zidane. Zidane, although some would say he just got lucky at uh, Real Madrid. Oh, Arvin shaking his head. He's a Real Madrid fan. <laughs> but maybe midfielders are the best managers. They, they, they see the, they see the game in the middle. Patrick Vieira is making a name for himself as well. Yeah. Quite well, at Crystal Palace. You could look at one of the all-time greats in Cruyff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just being a really tough, nasty guy <laughs> is <laughs> is the deal. Okay, we move on to um, uh, the, uh, the Yorkshire 
match. Well, not the Yorkshire match. I mean, the Leicester won Leeds nil. Two teams that have been really hit by injuries this season. And in the in the case of Leeds, they lost uh, the manager Bielsa with the new ma- first uh, match for the new manager Jesse March and in charge i don't know if we saw a sense of his style uh but it, it seemed to me like leeds played well but lost same old story yep. arvin um were you cheering from the sidelines thinking the future's bright yeah i thought uh, there, there, were, there were good things and there were a little bit of unfortunate things i mean the good things is leeds looks much more compact they look much more compact under jesse march i mean they started with a with a 4-2-3-1 formation and then they kind of moved it to a little bit of a 4-2-4. They, they've kind of abandoned that man-to-man marking that Marcelo Bielsa did. So Marcelo Bielsa man to mark everyone on the pitch. So 11 players would man-to-man mark <laughs> 11 players. Someone would probably be man-marking the opposition goalkeeper as well. Someone <laughs> pushing from up front. There was a sense of Leeds being a little bit more compact, a little bit more stable. There was a little bit more structure. So that was the good thing. And I thought the players looked to have bought into his philosophy after only training with him for four days. So I thought that was quite remarkable to kind of see that move quite quickly. And Jesse March has come across as someone who's very respectful of the Bielsa era, someone who wants to kind of impose his own style, but kind of understands the value, values of what these Leeds players bring. So that's the good news. The unfortunate news was is that it's another loss, another no points, and chances that came begging. Like you said, Cam they need someone like Patrick Bamford to put the ball in the back of the net because if they don't, that's what relegation is going to bring to you. If you don't score, you get relegated. So good things for Leeds from that match, but they just need to continuously build for it and a couple of games now which are must-win for them. But Arvin, I wanted to... Sorry, Cam. I just wanted to ask. There was a moment in that game where... Do you think that Leeds should have had a penalty? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's quite quite common. I mean, these kind of decisions kind of even themselves out. And the challenge from Roberts as well? Yeah, exactly. The challenge from Roberts as well, which uh, Marty kind of kung fu kicked him, which I didn't really agree with. So there there were a couple of things. But when you're on top, Sean, Leeds should have scored. And then all it takes is someone like Harvey Barnes and Kelly Chinecho to play a nice one-two, and they score. So Leeds went into it much better. And I think the commentator summed up really well. Leeds fans would have just wanted the last five minutes of the game for them to still be in the game. And they were. So now, home games against Villa and Norwich, they need to get points. Uh, Leeds are in the bottom five, two points above the relegation zone. There's a gap between them and Brentford. So it looks like it's going to be a fight between those. But let's go across, Sean. Can I ask you about Leicester? It's a club we haven't really talked about that much this season because they've been having troubles of their own. But they're beginning to... Get things together a bit. They've had two wins in a row. They're going to be meeting Arsenal next. Uh, uh, has something happened there? Uh, they realised that their manager is going to be staying come what may and they better just get on with it? Or how? No, I think you mentioned it earlier about injuries. You know, Leeds were suffering with injuries. So were Leicester. They lost some really key players. Someone like Wesley Fofana. They've lost him for pretty much half the season and he's finally coming back. Key players are coming back at the right time. So you have the, the final quarter of the season left now and you want your best players back. So And you got Jamie Vardy, who's also back. Arguably one of the best strikers in the league. Leicester have it going for them now. It's a matter of, you know, I, I say this every week about being consistent, but it's going to be difficult because they have tough games coming up. What you want right now, I mean, as a Leicester fan probably, is to see this trajectory continue. They won midweek. They won against Leeds. Now it's a matter of just continuing what they're doing. And I think they have it going good. Whether or not they finish in a European place, I doubt it. 
but they could have a strong enough finish, uh, taking into consideration how poorly they started the season. Yeah, I mean, there are, I don't know, European places, there's a big gap. <laughs> there's a yeah, big, there's a big gap. gap. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's go across then to um, uh, the resurgent Newcastle United 2, Brighton 1. Uh, the, uh, you know, Newcastle have bought in a lot of players recently, uh, none of which were actually, I think, on the score sheet on this occasion, didn't play that great a part in the game. But something's happening at Newcastle, Arvin. They're getting themselves together, and I'm wondering it, what is the, 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 the style, the structure that they're building now that would take them to the future? How many steps before they win the Champions League in, I don't know, <laughs> five years? Is that... Mm-hmm. Optimistic? Nah, nah, it's going to take a while. But I mean, the revival for Eddie Howe for the Black and White Army really continues. I mean, they haven't lost in eight Premier League games. Did we think we would say that at the beginning of the season? The the, the, the degree to how they were sliding down, the, the, how long they spent in the bottom, the bottom two at that point with, with Norwich, they were kind of interchanging. So I think Eddie Howe has just deserved so much of credit. He literally took over such a bad show at, at Newcastle. He's kind of they were doomed for relegation. They, there was no confidence. There was no style of play. And there was a lot of concerns that, yes, he was a very enterprising and exciting manager at Bournemouth, but he also got Bournemouth relegated. So is this what Newcastle really won? But he's completely turned turned it around, off the pitch and on the pitch as well. Rejuvenated players, astute signings. When you look at the likes of Chris Wood and you look at the likes of Dan Byrne, those are players who were better than the majority of their supporting class at, the, at their previous clubs. So what he's done is kind of gone to those other clubs and picked the best from what they can do. So I think that, I mean, and and for me right now, Ryan Fraser is just playing out of this skin. They talked a lot about that when Kieran Trippier got injured, he kind of brought them the points that they needed to stay up. Ryan Fraser is doing more than that right now. He's kind of getting them even further up. So I think what they've done with Eddie Howe and what the signings he's done, he deserves a lot of credit. So they're not going down. They're just going to go back up. And it's like what Sean said a couple of, a couple of shows ago. It's really exciting to see what they do come this end season or in the next couple of transfer windows. Well, very quickly then, I want both of you to predict Champions League for Newcastle in how many years? Sean? Ten years. <laughs> but do you think, do you think it's, possible? it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be it's the amount of money they've got. Possible. Yeah. You look at City right now, they're still looking for their Champions League since their owners came in. So yeah. who's to say Newcastle you know, can't be challenging for it? I wouldn't say win it, but challenging for it. with uh, Arvin, how many years? I say qualification will still take them five years. You the established order of Man City, Liverpool, uh, Chelsea, and then you've got the the old traditionalists of Man United and Arsenal and Spurs. It's going to take a while. It's not that easy. All that money doesn't guarantee anything. So for me, five years before they even get to the Champions League qualifying. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. So uh, stay tuned, tsunami. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but it, and also stay tuned because in a moment we're going to be talking uh, some more Premier League and, and also the issues surrounding Chelsea here on Off the Ball on BFM eighty nine point nine. Because whilst he's there, it's been very difficult for other clubs to get near them. He's that good. Off the ball on BFM eighty nine point nine. And we're back with myself, Cam Raslan, uh, Sean Maholtra, and Arvin Sidhu. And now we go to, well, bottom of the league versus kind of top of the league. Uh, we have Burnley nil, Chelsea four. I, yeah, I guess we can talk about the match. You know, Chelsea very good, blah, blah, blah. They won, blah, blah, blah. Very dominant Luka- without Lukaku. I thought they kind of looked different. There was something different about them, sort of lighter. Um, 
<laughs> younger. I don't know what it was, but there was a new kind of style there. Did you spot anything, Sean, that, you know, that taught us anything about Chelsea? We, we said this a few weeks ago when I think Chelsea played City and Dukaku got only like seven or eight touches in the game or something like that. Where And I mentioned during that time where you can't have passengers in a game, especially for a club like Chelsea. You want all your players to be putting in the shift, just like what Thomas uh, Tuchel and Klopp all do with their teams. Everyone puts in a shift. And you see that they don't have a recognisable striker on the field, but you see every player... That's the, the scary part about not having a recognisable striker in the game, which is what I thought about City as well. When you play with a false nine-ish kind of system, the three players up forward for you, they can all interchange at any given point. If Havertz drops down, you're going to have centre-halves follow him, and that creates space for the wingers to go in. So... You see that there's more freedom for that Chelsea team to play, right? You look behind them, you have Kante there, and you, you, you feel reassured when you have Kante behind you. So, you look at all these little components that make a team, I don't think Lukaku fits into that, that, that system that they want to play. And now they have Reese James that's also come back from injury. <laughs> what a goal he scored. I think mm. it's one of the best goals of the weekend. Oh, it was spectacular. Beautiful. So right. I didn't even see, I didn't understand how he did it. I was watching it, it's like, what happened? He's been, been doing it goal. the whole season. He's been doing that the whole season. So you have your best players back at the right time. Like I was saying earlier, uh, this is the final quarter of the season. You need the, your teams to be playing at the best possible way. And if Lukaku doesn't fit that, you don't need to play him because the rest of the team can score goals. Yeah. Uh, well, Arvind, uh, you, you and me, I want us to talk business. Um, Chelsea is up for sale. Yes. Uh, Roman Abramovich is asking for a mere three billion, and uh, but I th there was some rating agency that that said it was worth only two point four billion, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know. I think that we could do an off the ball uh, consortium. Yeah, we could put it together, me, you, Sean, get a, get a couple of other guys. I think we could. Yeah. yeah, but would we want to? Do you want? Does anybody? Who would want to buy a football club at this time? There has been some interest, apparently, but mostly from Americans, of all people. I think there's, that... a, there's a Turkish billionaire now that's come in last minute as well. So Americans and the Turkish billionaire. And also, if, if Abramovich does sell it, there is a possibility that whatever money he makes from it could be instantly seized. I don't think there's yeah. any appetite with, by the British government to do such a thing, but it is potentially possible. Hmm. And so I don't, I mean, do you, can you imagine anybody wanting to buy Chelsea right now for that amount of money? I mean, it's a, it's a lot of money, but the, the, I think it's still a very attractive proposition, the way that you look at, you, you position Chelsea. I mean, reigning world and European champions, one of the most sought-after locations in London. Um, and, and I think they've got a basis there for, he's done. he's been a tremendous owner for them, firstly. Let's not take anything away from Roman Abramovich. 19 years, 19 titles, five league titles, two Champions Leagues. Chelsea fans have a lot, a lot to be indebted to for what Roman has done for them. So I still feel that um, he's going to come out and say that the net proceeds of this sale will go to the unfortunate victims of the Ukraine disaster. I don't know how that works. But uh, Chelsea as a proposition is a very attractive one. It's just the selling price. I think there were a couple of months ago that there was some talk between some of the billionaires that were coming together and saying what he wanted was a bit far away from their evaluation. I think that the owner of the LA Dodgers as well felt that it was a bit too far off. So I think, but at this position of time, Richard Masters from the Premier League has said the quickest that we've done a Premier League sale is in 10 days. We could do it quicker, but when you have a many different components coming together, it gets a little bit more complex. 
So I don't think we'll see it immediately happen. But for an owner to come out and make a statement like that, I, I think he's very serious about this and he knows he cannot afford to keep it longer. But like you said, the assets could be frozen. So, Sean, I know you're a Manchester United fan, but are you in? Do you want to buy Chelsea? If I can make money, why not? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's always been a dream. If I ever became a billionaire, I would love to buy a football club. So yeah, why not? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's talk after the show and we'll see what we got. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, producer Daryl, I think, will also come in too. Okay. We're going to move on to um, uh, next match where... This was a very important match, and it was at the bottom of the table. Norwich won Brentford three. Brentford, um, you know, these are two 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 clubs that came up from um, promotion promotion from the championship during their time in the, the championship. Norwich were playing very attractive football, getting a lot of plaudits, and now they're getting absolutely thumped in the Premier League. Brentford came up. I thought they were going to go straight back, back down, but when I when I watched them, I realised that they have a physicality that they, like they were kind of prepared for a, a Premier League campaign, um, and it's kind of coming to pass. Brentford are fifteenth, twenty seven points. Yeah, they 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 could pull it off. Norwich, on the other hand, completely doomed. I'm wondering, uh, Sean, what is what do you have to do to be able to survive in the Premier League when you come up? I think expectations need to be realistic. Let's say you're a club like Norwich. And I think Arvin or someone mentioned this a few weeks ago. A lot of those Norwich players are not Premier League quality players. They've not invested well into that team for the Premier League. When you go into the league, right, as a promoted team, at least in my mind, you want someone who's experienced fighting for survival, right? Not only in your coaching sense, but in the players as well. When you go against the, the bigger teams like Liverpool or Chelsea or City, the expectations are you're probably going to get thumped, right? You'll be lucky to get a point out of those games. But when it comes to games like this against Brentford, you're expected to perform. You're expected to, to challenge these teams who are you know right down there with you. But they don't have any of that. Norwich is a prime example of a team that's come up, gone down, come up, gone down, come up, gone down. They've never you know, improved on their team. I think I still see some of the same players that were there when they last got promoted. So you don't have experienced players there who, who can help you in those moments where you're like fighting down there. It's, it's, it's a rinse and repeat cycle, but take nothing away from Brentford because if you look at certain players they have, you'd say they fit in in other teams. And it's nice to see Christian Eriksen back out there again. And players like Ivan Tony, I think that's someone they've been missing for a long time through injury. He's come back, scored a hat-trick. <laughs> Why not? That's, that's what you want. That's what you want in players who are going to perform when it matters most. Well, uh, Arvin, you're, you're a fan of uh, Leeds United, a club that disappeared into the championship for quite some time. So you, you know the championship better than I do. They, they came back up finally for a couple of seasons. They might be going back down again. They don't have any recognizable players. They don't have that, that, that kind of uh, experience that Sean's talking about. Do you think that, that's a problem? It is a problem. I think it's. I think Sean put it up really well. It is a problem. Um, so with Fulham, I mean, they're what they're doing right now is they're running away with the championship. They've, they've got a healthy lead. You expect them to come back up to the Premier League. Now, the question we will ask ourselves is: Has Fulham learnt from the seasons gone by? And they've got the same players right now that they've had in the Premier League. They're in the Championship. So when they come back up to the Premier League, will they kind of get those personnel that, like what Sean said, are battlers? Those season pros that know what it means like to survive in the Premier League. You look at the Norwich personnel right now. I mean, Ben Gibson. I cannot imagine a Premier League defender making mistakes like how he did. 
The first one, okay, fine, slightly unfortunate with the penalty. The second one, Ivan Tony literally slows down to the point that he knows Ben Gibson's going to tackle him, so he awaits and he gets tackled, gets the, gets the second penalty, hat-trick done. Kenny McLean, those players are not Premier League Premier. The only one that always somehow is them with them is Timu Puki. Again, I thought Timu Puki's goal was, was nicely taken, but he will go down to the championship, and then you've got to ask yourself, what is Timu Puki's aspirations? Does he want to come back up with Norwich? Or does he want to try somewhere else different? So for me, this was a hammer blow for Norwich because the worst thing you want to do is lose to a fellow potential relegation struggler. And they've lost to Brentford. Brentford have moved up slightly. Hammer blow for their already dwindling relegation um, prospects. So for me, they and Watford are pretty much certainties. It's just a question of who's going to take that third spot. Yeah. So then, uh, quickly, quickly then, two of you, to, to answer the question, is often on my mind when I'm watching these kinds of uh, clubs, is it is it better to win the championship as a sort of like a mini Barcelona with flowing attacking football and then come back up? Because they seem to constantly be punished, that kind of team. Or is it best to come up as a Burnley, as a, a Sam Allardyce type team, a, a battlers, turgid one nils, the kind of club that Des Corkill hates, basically? Mm. Sean, where, where, would, where would you be if you're, if, you know? What would you like your team to be when Manchester United come back up from the uh, championship? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th- there's two ways of looking at it, right? The money plays a big part for these clubs. If your, your club isn't, to say, well off, that, that boosts the cash that you get from getting promoted and winning the championship, even getting relegated from the Premier League is still a hefty amount. As a fan, you'd want to see your team do well at the highest division possible, which is the Premier League. So for me personally, I would be happy just qualifying through and then doing steadily well in the Premier League. Because what's the point of going up and then going back down and then going back up again? I mean, it's great as a neutral, but as a fan, that must be really traumatic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's move on to a, t- uh, to a club that I thought was an absolute certainty to be relegated. I had First on the list was Crystal Palace. They've been a revelation for me this season. Wolves nil, Crystal Palace two. What I got away from from this was Wolves, uh, a club, a team that's been playing really quite well, looked absolutely desperate. I don't know what was going on there. And three losses in a row. Arvin, did you... What, who are Wolves? Just as I would ask the same question, who's Southampton? Who are Wolves? So Wolves, Wolves for me is what... I would have answered to your previous question about what kind of club do you want to get promoted up to the Premier League. They've come up to the Premier League. They haven't blown teams away with their style of play. They've been quite conservative but quite steady and with occasional moments of brilliance that you get the likes of Daniel Pedence and then previously with Adama Troyer and Diego Jota who moved on to other things. So Wolves for me is the type of model that you need to follow to kind of sustain yourself in the Premier League at least for a period of three to five years and then you get someone who probably plays a bit more attractive and a bit more expansive type football. So I think Wolves is the, is the perfect answer for the previous question. Now, what Wolves are now is something that is totally unexpected that's happened to them in 2022. They've lost all their games in, in, in London against London teams. So they've lost to Arsenal. They've lost now to Crystal Palace. They've lost to West Ham as well. So it seems to be a London thing clearly right now. <laughs> and I think one thing that they are, they're struggling with is when they, they do not start with Raul Jimenez, that is an, a huge issue for them that they've had for a couple of seasons right now. They've tried to bring in other players to kind of kind of provide that backup option to them, but it's not enough. And right now, they're playing such a high defensive line. And when you play that high defensive line, it gets exploited with the type of runners that Crystal Palace have 
I mean, Conor Gallagher's pass for mm. one of those goals was just mm. so good down the byline. So for me, Wolves have just hit a very uh, a patch which is the most unfortunate patch because they've done really well throughout the season and when it matters the most, it's falling away from them right now. Yeah, we should remember, of course, that Wolves are eighth on 40 points, which is pretty good. <laughs> they're, they're, they're definitely not going to get relegated, so they're safe. And I guess the, even they would be asking themselves, what is it that they are playing for now? But uh, another team, well, the team that's been a revelation for me this season is Crystal Palace. I've enjoyed them so much. Conor Gallagher has been, for me, the, the standout player, really. I mean, the, the new arrival. Uh, Sean, they are finally getting the points that they probably deserve to get. Because if you look at the table, they are 10th on 33 points. And in my mind, I would imagine they're way higher and they've got far more points. If you, you told a Palace fan at the start of the season, you'd be in 10th playing attractive football, scoring goals, have a team that you can look forward to, have a manager that can probably be there for a long period of time. They would have taken it <laughs> because last season they were fighting against relegation with Roy Hodgson. And you know what you're going to get with Roy Hodgson, which is boring defensive football. But with... Patrick Vieira, at the start of the season, you could see what he was trying to do with that team, right? They were trying to play attacking football. Conor Gallagher has been a revelation at Palace, and he could fit into that Chelsea team next season once he goes back, if he you know, continues on this trajectory. And if he doesn't, there's going to be many clubs looking at him. And he's only boosting his chances for a, a spot in the England team for the World Cup. This, this Palace team is beautiful to watch. And Vieira's got them ticking now. You know, you've got Zaha who's playing out of his skin. Olise, Gallagher. These are all players that can move this club forward. And if Gallagher stays there next season, you know, Patrick Vieira can build that team around him. You know, he can make it even better than it already is. And I think the unsung hero for Palace on the day, just on the day, was Jeffrey Schlupp. Beast of a, a player. I think he's huge. He's fast. He's quick. Could have scored a goal if he really tried. It's going good for Palace. They can only look forward right now. Yeah. That was that was a schlop moment for me, though. Uh, you know, moves forward, does all the hard work really well, and then he misses. <laughs> it's like, schlop moment. Schlop moment. <laughs> um, okay, let's go. Let's, uh, let's uh, t- take our final break. And in a moment, I want to ask about the Arsenal project. Something strangely good is happening there, and I want us to get to the bottom of it and work out what it is. Here on Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. England's highest quality title race of all time, but coming out on top again in the Premier League, Manchester City. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on the final part of Off the Ball. It's uh, now Watford 2, Arsenal 3, leaving the best for last, but it was one of the last matches that got played. Pulsating match. Uh, It was great fun. And Arsenal are in the top four. And after the beginning of the season, I thought they were going to get relegated. And something seems to be going right there. And they're young, which is the usual traditional Arsenal thing. Get, you know, get a bunch of really young people from the French second division. And, but, you know, the likes of Saka was absolutely magnificent. Uh, Arvin, what's, what's going on? Uh, it's in a, a fantastic run that they're on right now. I mean, 10 games, 25 out of 30 points. I mean, that's unheard of right now. If you're looking at the form table on the team, Yes, Man City is right up there. You've got Liverpool, but then you've got Arsenal. They are showing consistency when the likes of Spurs haven't been able to do it. Man United haven't been able to do it. And I think Arteta right now, the one-touch football and the transition in play that they, they he's implemented in that team 
fits to a T with the type of players that he has there. Martin Odegaard, for me, was fantastic on the day. Bukaya Saka as well, creating and showing desire to rob uh, the defender and get the ball back from Tom Cleverley, and then after it, still be on the end to score a goal. What Arteta has done really well is that he's kind of got rid of negative influences in Arsenal, the likes of Pierre Ramek or Bowang that had a, had a lot of chatter in the, in the dressing room, showing up for training late. But he's also got those who Arsenal fans kind of kind of get frustrated with, like the likes of Granit Xhaka, to kind of toe the line. So that shows management styles where he can be very brutal about things. But for those who are with him, he makes sure that they toe the line and they do what's necessary for them. So I think right now you're seeing the foundations of what Arsenal is building, which bodes well for the future. And they've got a really young squad cam. I mean, Ben White and Gabriel for me at the back, Aaron Ramsdale, they've got a spine. When was the last time we said Arsenal has a spine? During the invincible, <laughs> during the Invincibles area. But, but but right now they've got a spine. And Thomas Party again for me was masterful in midfield. So really good things. I think the only thing that they need to sort out now is with Aubameyang leaving, he has gone to Barcelona. Lacazette's contract is coming to an end. Who is that final piece of that striker that's going to get them the 20, 25 goals? If they get that, next season, very exciting times for Arsenal. Olivier Giroud, he's the man. He's been doing well in Italy, I believe. Uh, yes, Arvin. he has. For Milan, for Milan, he has. He's got over the weekend as well. So, yes, he's been doing well. Yeah. So, uh, if any uh, Arsenal uh, top brass are listening, check out this guy, young guy, French guy in the, in the uh, Serie A called Olivier Giroud. <laughs> Sean, I actually thought, though, that Watford... They were in good chance. The scoreline was a little bit flattering, but it, it, they they fought back. And I think that your uh, Manchester United's next manager, Roy Hodgson, he um, I thought that he, he's bringing something to it. it was not a clean sheet, and he has been and he has been able to create clean sheets, which is unheard of in Watford. Mm. Uh, I, you've got some. You've got one of the youngest managers and easily the oldest manager, uh, but yeah, they're doing quite good things. I mean, Roy Hodgson, we shouldn't, we shouldn't just laugh him off. He's, he, there's something about him. He's got something. I mean, you're coming in mid-season, not even mid-season, towards the end of the season to save a team that, I'm not going to mince my words here, it's experts in failure in terms of like, getting relegated and then coming back. So you shouldn't be surprised with what you're seeing. I, I saw a stat the other day. I think Watford have had six different managers win their first six away games or something like that. I'm like, what? <laughs> It's, it's, it's a team that has no consistency from top to bottom. You last maybe a month or two at Watford, and that's not me being you know dramatic or whatever. That team has no identity. They don't know what they're supposed to do. You have a manager that's going to come in every two months changing the way you play. There's, there's no way you're going to play a certain way and, and grind things out. The only way you can maybe hope to survive in the Premier League is by playing ugly. And you're going to get that with Roy Hodgson. You're going to play ugly. You're going to play defensive football. You're going to play on the counter-attack. Take nothing away from the first goal Watford scored. That was what a bicycle kick. Yeah. That's what you're going to have. You're going to have moments and you're going to have to seize those moments when you're at Watford. Because you're not going to get the 20, 30 chances in a game. You're going to get maybe two or three and you have to take them. Two goals, again, it flattered them. Arsenal could have scored more. But I, I think it's it's too little too late. Even if Roy Hodgson is going to make them play some ugly football, it's going to play ugly football, you know, and they're going to get relegated and probably come back next season <laughs> by winning the championship. So, <laughs> hmm. uh, you know, just about everything you said there, Sean, I think could apply to uh, the next teams we're going to talk about because there's a match coming up uh, midweek. Well, very soon. It's going to be Spurs versus Everton. Spurs is a club... <laughs> 
I don't know what to say about Spurs. <laughs> Talk about hot and cold. Arvin, Spurs, gosh, I mean, they desperately need to get something together. It's where they are now seventh spot, spot not bad, 42 points. They've got a few games in hand. They could go past Manchester United, well, which is not necessarily saying anything, but they can't seem to get any consistency. Can they finally get it against uh, an Everton who themselves need to get who are really fighting for something. No, the, the Tottenham, Tottenham pattern is they've got dumped out of the FA Cup by Middlesbrough. They'll win this game against Everton. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and, and, and then the weekend when they've got a tough game as well, they probably lose that one. So for me, uh, what was very damning was Antonio Conte coming out and saying managers come, managers go. But the culture in this club has been of such for decades. And it's going to take much more than me to change this. When you have someone like Antonio Conte coming on saying it. And he's probably doing it because of a bit of a power play. He's probably thinking that eventually I should be paid off. I can go to a bigger club because I, when I've come in here, I've not realized the size of the task that I'm I'm kind of inheriting, which he should have because he would have had the list of players and he would have known who he's taking over. But for me, the likes of being dumped out of the Africa by Middlesbrough, those are the type of trophy, trophies that Spurs fans clamor for. They, they need a trophy. They're not going to win the league. Let's. They're not going to win the league. The FA Cup, the League Cup, those are the type of trophies that they need. And unfortunately, again, this is what we say season in, season out, on any manager that comes. So maybe it's not really a manager thing. It's not really maybe even a player thing. It's just the culture in the club that Daniel Daniel Louis and a very, very rich owner in Joe Lewis above him. So it's something needs to change at that top management of Spurs. But no, I expect them to beat Everton this week only on the basis that they got knocked out by Middlesbrough in the FA Cup. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of scary when all you can do is 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 look at um, kind of uh, superstitious signs only because a, a crow flew flew in front of me. Will Spurs win? <laughs> okay, well then another team that really need to get their act together. Everton. They are in um, perilous situation. One place above the drop zone, 22 points, as opposed to Burnley's 21 points. Burnley, who, despite losing, uh, looking not too bad. And uh, they got plenty of games in hand, though, Everton. But I kind of feel like, I don't know, Frank Lampard, eh, there's a bit of complaining noises. It's a bit whiny. Uh, do you think that Everton under Lampard, the, the Lampard revolution, Sean, uh, is, there, is there a Lampard revolution? Again, he's come in towards the end of the season. And he has a job of just making sure that they get by this season. It's not a matter of, let's get Europe, let's let's beat every team and, and, and finish the season strong. It's a matter of just getting by. It takes a lot more time to get this team ticking than just a couple of months or a couple of weeks or whatever. He's going to need that summer. And I think he's going to get that summer and get the players that he wants in and, and make them play a certain way. The great thing for Everton right now, aside from the fact that they have those games in hand, is that every team below them, aside from Brentford maybe, uh, is Brentford above them? They're above, yeah, above, above, above them. But every other team below them lost their games over the weekend. So they have a chance to still you know, say, hey, you know what? We still have our own faith in our hands. We still have the games in hand. They may not beat Spurs, but they have every opportunity to win every other game. So... I would say Lampard will show his true colours come the summer when he gets the players he wants in and gets the players he wants out and then he can build his proper team. Well, stay tuned to that one. I think Spurs are going to lose because that's just what they do. Because Arvin thinks they're going to win 
they are clearly going to lose. <laughs> it's, yeah. reverse, it's the reversing of the reverse psychology. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. Sean, myself, and Arvin, we're going to have a discussion. Uh, producer Daryl, bring him in too uh, after the show, and we'll work out how much money we got and if we're going to buy Chelsea. I, I don't actually, quite frankly, I would never want to buy Chelsea. I mean, of all the clubs out there, the last one I would want would be Chelsea. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I support no team in particular, but I, I really don't support Chelsea. Uh, so that brings us to the end of this week's show. And I'd like to thank um, Arvin Sidhu. Thank you, everyone. Enjoy the Champions League and other midweek games this week as well. And uh, we didn't talk about any of the Champions League. And uh, we're going to add also thank you to Sean Maholtra. Thank you, thank you. Everybody have a good week. Unless you're a United fan, stay in your caves. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, good luck, Sean. <laughs> and uh, myself, Cam Rasland. And please join us next week, or rather next Friday, for On The Ball here on BFM 89.9. Where's the try? <laughs> and he's always prepared to give it a go. Off The Ball on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.